And we're going to attempt to finish the, the phase we got into last week. Jesus is talking with the woman at the well. And we're not going to go back through the whole thing. We're going to pick up on verse, um, verse 21. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall we worship the Father. Because she'd raised the question of where the right place to worship is. And I, I, my own view is she was doing that to try to change the subject because he was talking to her about things that were getting a little too personal, like her home life. And she was beginning to realize that this man that's talking to her is not just some Jewish male, but at least he's a prophet because he knows things about her he couldn't know any other way except supernaturally. And you know that can get you uncomfortable when you're around things when the supernatural begins to happen? It can get a little uncomfortable for our flesh. In fact, it can get a lot uncomfortable for our flesh. And you get around somebody where the gift of prophecy or the gift of, uh, of, of, um, of wisdom or knowledge begins to operate, and people that don't have an understanding of those gifts can get a little spooked because, oh my goodness, they're going to know everything about me. And they only know what the Spirit of God reveals to them. And that's what's going on here. So she's a little uncomfortable, so she's trying to change the subject, I believe. And well, let's talk about something spiritual. Where's the right place to worship? Our father said on this mountain, you, you Jews say that it's in Jerusalem. And see, anytime you try to work with Jesus and manipulate him, it's just opening him up to deal with more truth in your life. And he takes this opportunity to talk to her about another level. And this is the one we've been learning about, which is worship. So you need to understand that because that's the background of this verse. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship the Father. Notice the hour is coming and w- w- that we will neither, in wish- neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, that's the Samaritans, what you do not know. We're going to talk about that a little later on. We worship the Jews, what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. For God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We've come through a long study that brought us several weeks ago to the point of, in Ephesians 3, of Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, which is God's will and desire for you and me. Paul's prayer was that God would strengthen them according to the, 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 according to the, the, the power of His glory, that they would be strengthened with might in their inner man by the Holy Spirit, that He would strengthen them, shore them up, so that they could receive what He was about to say, which was so that Christ could dwell in them by faith. And then He went on to talk about the purpose of that that Christ would dwell in them by faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, they would come to know with all the saints basically the dimensions, the extent, which is limitless, of the love of Christ, which passes understanding, passes the mind's capability of understanding, with the purpose, and this is what we focused on, that they would be filled, and this is God's prayer for you and me, that we would be filled with all the fullness of Him. Not just have a little dabble, do you? Not just have, well, God, you know, God, Jesus lives in me. To be filled 
with all of his fullness. And then Paul goes on to just to tell the, 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 uh, the Ephesians because that's just so, it just shakes our thinking because how could that happen? Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can ask or think. So as mind-bending as that is, as mind-blowing it is, that God wants to fill you with all of His fullness. A lot of us are full of ourselves. And God's in the process of trying to empty some of you out so that more of Him can get in there. That we be filled with all of the fullness of God, of Him. Imagine a church where everybody's filled to overflowing with His love, filled to overflowing with His power, filled to overflowing with His wisdom, filled to overflowing with who He is. Imagine what can happen. Well, we need to imagine that because God imagines it. That's His dream. That's His vision for this church, for you and for me. That's why Paul prayed this. It's not just an empty prayer from several thousand years ago. It's the will of God for your, your life and for my life. The answer for so many of your struggles and all of our struggles is in this. First John 4 says, Greater is he that's in me, you, than he that's in the world. Some of us are so threatened by what's going on in the world when God's living in us. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, If God's for you, to this extent, I mean, it's wonderful because God's for you in heaven, but God's living in you and He's for you. He's come as far as He can come. What else can He do? How else farther can He come to dwell inside of us, to want to fill us with all of His fullness? So when He fills us with His fullness, Jesus told His disciples, we looked at that in John 14, 15, and 16, He said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than you do. Why? Because I go to the Father, I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to put the same Spirit in you that's been in me. The works that I did, we saw, He said, there was the Father in me doing the works. So we've talked about Jesus was a prototype of what a Christian was to be, is to be which is what? A child of God filled with the Spirit of God. That's what he was. He laid aside all his attributes. He laid aside all his glory. He laid aside all of his power because if he walked around and did the things he did with those things, you and I would look at him and say, wow, that's Jesus, but who are we? But that would have left a weak, anemic church, which is basically what we are. But we're not weak and anemic because of what he's not done. We're weak and anemic because we haven't seen and believed and acted on what He's done. It is His will. It is His desire. It is His need that we here and all the other churches be filled individually with the fullness of Him. With the fullness of Him. And we look before John 14, 15, and 16 where Jesus in a number of places talks about, and I will be in you and you'll be in me and we'll be one. John 16 and 17 talks about that. John 14 where, Peter, where Philip was coming said, well, show us the Father. He said, wait a minute, Philip, don't you understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you don't believe that, at least believe it because of the works that I did. Because it wasn't I doing the works, it was the Father dwelling in me doing the works. And we saw that the way the Father dwelt in Him was by the Holy Spirit coming in Him. 
So Jesus goes on and says, it's to your advantage that I go, because when I go, I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send this Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that's been with you in me is now going to be in you. So you can now go do the works that I did. And that's what they did. You read the book of Acts. They stepped right out and began to do it. Once they were filled with the Holy Spirit, once they were filled with all of His, spirit, all of his presence, they went out and did the works that they did. And didn't think it was amazing? Come to a, the entrance of the, of the temple, Peter and John, and there's a man who's been lame from his birth. He's never walked. And he's asking for alms. He's asking for a donation. And Peter looks and says, well, you know, we don't have any money to give you, but we've got something better than that. What does he say? He says, in the name of Jesus. See, that meant something to them more than it means to us. It wasn't how they ended prayers. It wasn't what you stick on the end of grace when you eat your meal. He was saying, in his place, as his representative in this situation, as his body here, under the same anointing and the same power by which he did these things, in that same power, in that same anointing, I say to you, arise. And they took his hands and yanked him up. And his legs straightened out and he went praising God through the temple. They didn't think that was extraordinary because they believed that they were filled with him. So that's what we've looked at. And that's where the church is supposed to be today. All right. Then we looked at we ended up ta- we were talked last week about how does this happen? How does God fill us? I'm just like that. I want to know how. I hear but I want to know how. How does where, where does this happen? And we looked at the idea that the way God comes into us, the way God dwells in us is by His Spirit. We talked about this idea last week of fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. And you'll, some people use that term in their teaching and preaching. And, but a lot of times they miss the fullness of what that word's about. So we have this word fellowship that's part of our Christianese. And what we kind of mean by that is eating together. So, or just, you know, hanging out together, enjoying one another's company. And that's an aspect of it. And eating together is an aspect of it because it kind of helps, it's more conducive to what fellowship really is, which is just sharing ourselves together, sharing our time together. But if that's all you think this means, you're only riding on the surface of what it means. It has a meaning that's much deeper, which actually is what allows us to do that hanging out together in a meaningful way. What the word literally means, the Greek word actually means down at his heart, is a sharing of things together in common, whatever that may be. Now, we have twin boys, identical twins, and they not only share their clothes, <laughs> but they literally share their genetic structure, their DNA. I mean, their, their, their whole design, physical design, is sharing together, but it's not hard to understand because they came out of the same union together. So it's not shocking that they should look alike. It's not shocking that they should sound alike. It's not shocking that they should walk alike. This is you have things because they've come out of the same union. 
when you came to Christ, you were joined to him. And the, the part, the way that joining took place was a joining together of his spirit and your spirit. Let's, let's, I'm going to show you. I, I quoted something last week, but I want to go into it and share it with you a little bit. Well, before we do that, I just want to go to a couple of scriptures just to remind you. 1 Corinthians 1.9, you don't need to turn there. Paul is to- oh, by the way, Paul is talking here to a church that's full of, full of strife, full of divisions. They're, they're squabbling over who they're, you know, I'm of Paul. Some say, well, I, you know, I, Apollos is a better teacher. I follow him. Some said they were Christ. Some say, and Paul's correcting them, and he starts out by saying in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That doesn't just mean we're called to be able to talk to him and hear from him. That word is koinonia, which means we're called into a union with him, to be one with him. The very same thing that, that Jesus talks about in John 14, 15, and 16, and then actually in 17 when he's praying for the church, that we would be one, that I would be one with you, you'd be one with me, the Father would be one with me, the Father would be one with you. Just as I'm one with the Father, you'd be one with the Father, I'd be one with you, and here's the real kicker, you'd be one with each other. You know, what does all that mean? It's wonderful sentiment. It's a wonderful idea. But what does it mean? Well, it means more than just talking and sharing and hanging out together. That all comes from the root of what it means. And then over, and we talked about, uh, over in, in first, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, And the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the grace of Christ is the essence of who Christ is, what He came to be. The love of the Father is the essence of who He is. That's His nature. He is love. Everything else comes out of that. But the third part that He talks about here is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And I've heard that taught. That means He's the one we commune with. And that's true. But what He's talking about here, He is the union. He is this joining together. He is this part. He is what joins us together. Ephesians 4 talks about the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit's not divided. He's one. That can't mean that, well, He's he's not separated one Spirit. No, He's called the Spirit of unity because it's the Spirit that unifies us together. I'm sure many of you had the experience. I certainly remember when I did. When I first got saved and I was working in a large law firm and I discovered there was somebody else in there that was a Christian. They were a secretary. So in the pecking order, we weren't at the same level. But once I found out they were a Christian, all those things separate, disappeared. And when you meet somebody, especially when you're first saved, and you, just, you meet somebody that's a Christian, you're a Christian? Wow! And suddenly you feel a closeness to them that you don't feel with relatives that you've known your whole life. And I remember, that's strange until I began to understand what it is was there's a recognition in here that the same spirit that's in here was in them. You ought to stand here some Sunday and look at yourself. Because I'm looking out at something on the outside in our, in our physical bodies that the government tries to legislate. We've got people in here from all different races, all different backgrounds, all different educational levels, all different, all different you know, uh, 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 nationalities, ages, all different. There's nothing that most of us have in common outside of the most important thing, which is Christ and the Spirit of Christ that's in us. This is why the, you, you cannot legislate these things, because they're issues of the heart. 
And you can't force people's heart to be a certain way. You can govern and force their actions, but you can't change their heart by laws. That's the whole Old Testament. Couldn't shows you couldn't do that. So what does God do? Glad you asked. You're sharp this morning. Let's go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. God's talking here about Israel, but what we're about to read was, was foretelling what the new birth was going to be. Verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet in John 13? And Peter says, oh, no, no, I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have, if I don't wash you, you don't have any place with me. And then Peter, of course, goes to the other extreme. Well, then give me a whole bath. And Jesus says, no, once I've cleaned you, you don't need to be cleaned again. And so water represents the washing, the cleansing. And so the prophet, the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Ezekiel, is talking about the new birth. He says, at that time, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Look at this. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So he's saying, what I'm going to do, and this is what the new birth does, I'm going to come because the issues of our life, why we sinned is because we were sinners. Why we were unloving, why we were ungrateful, why we're all the, it all came out of the heart. The heart's the issue. This is why you hear me use this example of you can't change a tree by gluing different fruit on the outside. You can make it stick there for a while, but when the wind comes and the rain comes, those pears or whatever that fruit is, they're going to fall off of it because they didn't come out of the tree, out of the nature of the tree. They were unnatural for the tree. And until you come to Christ, walking in righteousness is unnatural. We can do it to some degree by our own effort, but it can't sustain it and it can't last. And under pressure, we'll cave in because it didn't come out of us. It's something done out of our mind as an exercise of our mental will, but it's not coming out of our heart. So God's saying, I will come to you and I will take that heart of stone that was uncaring, ungiving, that was judgmental, that was cruel or mean, whatever it was in your case, and I will, I will take that heart out of you. And I will put a new heart in you that's a heart of flesh, that's tender, that's sensitive, that's open, that's caring. That's basically my heart I'll put in you. But it didn't stop there. That's what causes you to come alive unto God. As God takes that dead heart, dead unto Him, because a stone's dead, right? You can kick it, drop it, talk it to it. It won't answer you. It won't do anything because it's dead. I know years ago they had these moon rocks. You know, that was a fad for somebody to make a lot of money. But it's still rocks. They're dead. They can't, you can't relate to them. They can't do anything for you. I mean, they can dress your garden up or something, but you can't have a relationship with because they're dead. So a heart of stone ultimately represents being spiritually dead unto God. 
God says, I'll take that whole dead heart out of you and I will put my heart in you that's alive to me. I'll make you alive unto me as my child. But I won't stop there. I won't stop there. Because that doesn't satisfy the desire of my heart. Verse 27. And I will also put in you my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So God's saying, not only will I take that dead heart out of you and I will birth my life in you so that you're now my child. You're alive unto me. But I will also take my own spirit and I will place my own spirit in you just as I did in Jesus. Because before Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, he was God's child. He had God's life in him because remember the male seed didn't come from Joseph. It came from the Holy Spirit. So he was alive unto God. But in the Jordan River when he came out of that, the Spirit of God descended on him and he was now had, God, had, his, had God's Spirit in him also as his source of power, wisdom and direction and everything and glory. And God's saying, I'll take your heart of stone, dead heart, and I'll put my heart in you so that you're alive unto me, so that you're my child. But that's not enough. I'm also going to take my own spirit and I'm going to put my spirit in you. We talked last week about one of the examples of that is over in 1 Corinthians 9. We see there's a process by which God communicates with us. And this is where I want you to begin to see. God's method of our communicating with Him is Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any, if I don't wash you, you don't have any place with me. And then Peter, of course, goes to the other extreme. Well, then give me a whole bath. And Jesus says, no, once I've cleaned you, you don't need to be cleaned again. And so water represents the washing, a cleansing. And so the prophet, the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Ezekiel, is talking about the new birth. He says, at that time, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Look at this. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So he's saying, what I'm going to do, and this is what the new birth does, I'm going to come because the issues of our life, why we sinned is because we were sinners. Why we were unloving, why we were ungrateful, why we're all the, all came out of the heart. The heart's the issue. This is why you hear me use this example of you can't change a tree by gluing different fruit on the outside. You can make it stick there for a while, but when the wind comes and the rain comes, those pears or whatever that fruit is, they're going to fall off of it because they didn't come out of the tree, out of the nature of the tree. They were unnatural for the tree. And until you come to Christ, walking in righteousness is unnatural. We can do it to some degree by our own effort, but it can't sustain it and it can't last. And under pressure, we'll cave in because it didn't come out of us. It's something done out of our mind as an exercise of our mental will, but it's not coming out of our heart. So God's saying, I will come to you and I will take that heart of stone that was uncaring, ungiving, that was judgmental, that was cruel or mean, whatever it was in your case, and I will, I will take that heart out of you. 
and I will put a new heart in you that's a heart of flesh, that's tender, that's sensitive, that's open, that's caring. This basically my heart I'll put in you. But it didn't stop there. That's what causes you to come alive unto God. As God takes that dead heart, dead unto Him, because a stone's dead, right? You can kick it, drop it, talk it to it. It won't answer you. It won't do anything because it's dead. I know years ago they had these moon rocks. You know, that was a fad for somebody to make a lot of money. But it's still rocks. They're dead. They can't, you can't relate to them. They can't do anything for you. I mean, they can dress your garden up or something. But you can't have a relationship with because they're dead. So a heart of stone ultimately represents being spiritually dead unto God. God says, I'll take that whole dead heart out of you and I will put my heart in you that's alive to me. I'll make you alive unto me as my child. But I won't stop there. I won't stop there. Because that doesn't satisfy the desire of my heart. Verse 27. And I will also put in you my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So God's saying, not only will I take that dead heart out of you and I will birth my life in you so that you're now my child, you're alive unto me, but I will also take my own spirit and I will place my own spirit in you just as I did in Jesus. Because before Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, he was God's child. He had God's life in him because remember the male seed didn't come from Joseph. It came from the Holy Spirit. So he was alive unto God. But in the Jordan River when he came out of that, the Spirit of God descended on him and he was now had God had his had God's spirit in him also as his source of power, wisdom and direction and everything and glory. And God's saying, I'll take your heart of stone, dead heart, and I'll put my heart in you so that you're alive unto me, so that you're my child. But that's not enough. I'm also going to take my own spirit and I'm going to put my spirit in you. We talked last week about one of the examples of that is over in 1 Corinthians 9. We see there's a process by which God communicates with us. And this is where I want you to begin to see. God's method of our communicating with Him is His spirit to your spirit. Because the way, he's, the way you are joined to Christ, the way He's one with you, it's not one in our bodies because your body's sitting in that chair, my body's standing up here, and His body's in heaven. So it's not our bodies that are one. It's not our minds that are one because we, we don't always agree with Him and we certainly don't always agree with each other. So we're not always of the same mind, although we're one to grow towards that. So it's not a mental union it's not a physical union. We're going to see in a minute, it's a union of spirit to spirit. That's the spirit of unity. You understand that there are two realms of existence the Bible talks about. There's the natural material realm, which is the realm that our five senses detect. That's your sight, your feelings, your, your taste, your hearing, and whatever else. So the five senses detect things in this natural material realm because your body that uses those five senses 
came from this realm, and when you're done with it, it will return to this realm because it's of this realm, and that's why you've got to have a new body to get into the next realm because this body can't make it because it's, it's mortal and it can't enter into something that's immortal. It's just your earth suit, but it's the part of us we're so conscious of and aware of. But the other part of you is the spirit that's in you, that God put in you, and His Spirit in you, that's of the other realm, which is the spirit realm, which is an eternal realm, which is the the realm where God lives, and we're going to see that more clearly today. So it's important to understand that because you you exist in two realms. Your body exists in this realm, your spirit man exists in the other realm, and your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions is the bridge that connects the two together. So as we talked about last week, God's method of communicating with you is by His Spirit to your spirit. That's why the verses I quote so often are out of 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 2, uh, 9 and 10, which says there's things you haven't seen that God has for you, things you haven't heard that God has for you, things that never entered your heart, but God reveals them to us by His Spirit. His Spirit reveals them to it. It goes on to say spiritual things, the things of God, can only be revealed to us by His, by his, by his Spirit because they're from the spirit realm. So the carnal man can't understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. This is why, you know, for Christians to go on talk shows and try to explain God is just a waste of time. That's like going into a foreign country and try to give a lecture on something in your native language and they don't speak the language. They'll kind of get a sense of the emotion, but they won't understand what you're talking about because they can't discern it because it's spiritually discerned. God is spiritually discerned. He's not understood with the mind, so don't argue with people about God because when you're arguing with, you're coming out of the mind, and if you win the argument, you lose them. It takes a revelation where the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of your inner understanding and says, Oh, now I see. So God communicates us primarily. Now, there's supernatural things He does. Spirit to spirit, His spirit to our spirit. And then we looked at over in Romans 20, over in Romans 8, where He talks about when we talk to God, the Spirit of God in us is praying along with us with groans that are too deep to understand in words. He's praying because He searches down in your heart to pray to God what, to, to convert it into the perfect will of God. Because we don't know what to pray. We don't know how to communicate at God's level. But God knows that, so He's put His Spirit in you to help you do that, just as He's put His Spirit in you to take what God wants to show you and show it to you. So God's method of communicating with us is spirit to spirit, and it's not like you've got to discern something floating around. He put His Spirit in you to be joined to your spirit, so it perfectly communicates together. Nothing lost. Perfect one-on-one communication. The problem comes, of course. So your spirit always knows what God's saying. The problem isn't in our spirit. The problem is there's an 18-inch gap between our spirit and our mind. This is why we went over this in Renewing the Mind, because the mind now takes what the spirit's prompting and decides what it means and what to do with it. I'm sure most of us have had the experience where something comes to you, and you just know, you know, I really ought to do this. And then you start thinking about it. And what happens, the more you think about it, the more you talk yourself out of doing it. 
Because God doesn't explain to you why. He just tells you do it. When you get into the whys and the wherefores, you're in your mind. And you're figuring it out and you're no longer communicating directly with God. Your mind's trying to work with your will to figure out what you want to do and whether to do it or not. And that's where it gets lost. This is why we have to renew our mind to become more sensitive to what the Spirit of God's likely to say. And the more time you spend in your Word, the more you're going to know how God talks and what, how God thinks so you can recognize what these promptings are. And there's so many things God tries to show us and help us to avoid things we just completely miss because we're not sensitive to it. Now, I went through that with you for a reason because we're going to go back now. We're going to go back now to Romans. Let's see where we're going to go back to. To uh, John chapter 4. With all that background. Verse 23. The hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We'll talk about truth later on. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Who is He seeking to worship Him? Those who worship in spirit and in truth because according to Jesus, not, not the most popular worship leaders in the country, not your favorite artist, not, you know, some course you've taken, not what you think or even what I think, Jesus said, Jesus said, true worshipers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. There are some things we need to learn from this, and we have to be open. We have to be willing to set aside our attitudes, our understanding, you know, what so-and-so says and what such-and-such teaches, and they may be right, they may not be right, but most people aren't right about everything anyway, including me, and find out what Jesus says. What does Jesus say the Father's longing for? What does Jesus say a true worshiper is? Worships in spirit and in truth. Verse 24, and this tells you why. Because God is spirit. And as a result of that, those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What he's saying is this. This is why we spend all this time on it. God has put His Spirit in you to enable you, to fill you with His presence so that not only can He communicate with you and give you direction, but also that you can worship Him. And because God is spirit, He's not mind, He's not flesh, He's spirit. The only way true worship... Now, there are other things. There's praise. There's other forms of expressing things to God, which we may talk about later on. We're not talking about those. We're not talking about singing songs of thanksgiving. We're not talking about praising God. That's something else. Is what I want to dwell on this. Because so often what we call worship isn't worship 
true worship, it's praise, it's other things. And there's nothing wrong with those. But if we don't understand this, we won't strive for this. We won't aim for this. We won't reach for this. We'll settle for the goosebumps. We'll settle for the wonderful feelings. We'll settle for the wonderful sentiments. We'll settle for the release and the joy of expressing what we did to God earlier today. It was wonderful. There was a connection taking place there. That's why I had to sing it again without the music because it was coming out of your hearts to Him. And I really sensed it was ministering to him. So I'm not judging us. I'm, not, I'm only doing reading what God's word says anyway. But there's so, there are other aspects to this that, that, that are wonderful. They're fine. But if we don't understand this, we'll settle for things when God has something far, or has something a higher level of something better, which is where he's drawing us what he longs for. So to do that, we've got to be willing to set aside our preconceived ideas and just go with what Jesus says. So what he's saying is this. True worship has to, has to be in the realm of the Spirit. Why? Because that's the realm God lives in. That's what He is. So the only way we can really communicate with God for information is Spirit to Spirit. Why would it be shocking to understand that the only way we can worship Him is Spirit to Spirit? This is why Jesus says, in order to worship Him, you must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Why? Because God is spirit. The only way we can worship Him is in the realm that He exists in. And that's one of the reasons God has brought that realm, that realm down in you and in me. So we can worship Him out of that realm and in that realm. Everybody with me so far? Okay. All right. Now, while we're here, I want to look at something. This, Jesus, the woman was telling him, you know, you Jews worship in Jerusalem and we Samaritans worship here. And that's what Jesus says to her in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, the Samaritans, they were not in a covenant with God. You worship what you do not know. That represents people out there that have no relationship with God. They're not born again, but they're trying to worship God, whatever, however it is. They're trying to worship someone they don't know. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not worship because they don't know Him. Because worship comes out of a relationship. He says, but we Jews, we worship what we know because... Because the Messiah comes from... Let me just read it to you. We worship... We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So the Jews had a covenant with God so they knew who God was. They know He's Jehovah. They know He's the Holy One of Israel. They know He's the one that delivered them. They know what God did for them. And they worshiped Him. They attempted to worship Him out of what they knew of Him. Everybody with me? And that's where most of us have been. That's where the church has been. We're, we're worshiping a God we know. We know who He is. We know what He's done for us. We know that He loves us. We know that He saved us. We know the miracles He's done in our lives. We sang about some of those things this morning earlier. So we worship a God we know. But He's saying that's still not it. The Samaritans, the world tries to worship God, but they can't because they don't know Him. 
We Jews from whose salvation comes, we worship a God we know. But it's changing now. He says the hour's coming and now is when true worship won't be out in the world. It won't even be the God we know. It will be a spirit worship. It's another level. It's another level. All right, let's go look at this now. Let's look a little bit about what this is. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. This is, I know this is new for many of you. Just let's walk slowly through this. Again, we're not saying that what we've done is wrong. But what he's talking about is true worship. He's calling us to something, and if we don't know it's there, we'll settle for where we are. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but it's for you it's safe. Beware of dogs. This is not four-legged dogs. This is two-legged dogs. <laughs> this is people coming into the church who are trying to devour and take away the grace that's been given. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. What that's referring to is what was happening in the church back then is there were teachers that were coming in and they were, they were upset that the Christians weren't following the practices of the law. In fact, the Gentiles, when they got saved, weren't being physically circumcised. And there was a, there was a council, which is in Acts chapter 15, where by the Spirit of God, God was saying, that's not necessary anymore. That was an act under the old covenant of Abraham. Of, that, 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 that's, that's a, that was an effort in the flesh. And that's what he's going to talk about. There, he, what he's going to say, these people that come in that are probably sincere, he said, they're, they're trying to get you to focus on the things of the flesh for your relationship with God. So they're going to get you to mutilate your body. They're going to try to get you to go through the physical act of circumcision because they're focused on physically what you do as an act of worship. Notice what he's going to say here. I'm going to say a little side note here. What's happening in me is while I'm teaching, I'm, he's showing me things while I'm teaching it, which is where I know God's leading us here. Because I've taught some of these things over and over again, but I'm seeing things even now I didn't see this morning while we're teaching it. The Spirit of God, this is God's heart is to open our eyes to see this. For we are the circumcision, the true circumcision, who worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ. That word means boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. What he's saying is they're coming in, the religious people are coming in because they think worship is what you do with your flesh. But we're of the true circumcision. Where the cir- we don't have time to cover because the scriptures are the circumcision that's of the heart, not of the flesh. God took that old heart of stone out and put a heart of flesh in there. The Bible teaches under the new covenant that's where the circumcision takes place, and the circumcision under the old covenant under under the Old Testament was also a mark, a physical mark that the person was in covenant with God under those terms of the Abrahamic covenant. But the mark 
of the new birth that we're in covenant with God is not a mark on our physical body. It's a mark on our spiritual being. And it is the presence of the Spirit of God in us. He is the sign that we belong to God. He is the guarantee, Paul says. He is the guarantee of this. He is the proof that we belong to God is the presence of the Spirit of God in you. So if you could look in the spirit realm out there and see each one of us, the clarity of who belongs to Christ and who doesn't is obvious because those for whom the Spirit is dwelling in sticks out like a radiant light in the spirit realm. The reason we don't see it more in the natural realm is because we're not yet filled with His fullness. So Paul's saying here that the mark, the worship that we have, the worship unto God is not something we do with our flesh. It's not relying on, trusting in, looking at what we do with our flesh because it's in another dimension. But true worshipers are in the Spirit. We worship Him in the Spirit. All right, now let's go on because I want to get into this a little more, at least start to get into it today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what we're going to read is something where we read it and there's something secondary to get out of it. You'll see what I mean in a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now in this, Paul's correcting them. If you go back and read in chapter 9, especially chapter 10, they were getting off track. They were getting into some idolatry, which wasn't necessarily little things on the statue of their, on the dashboard of their car. It was things that were taking a place in their hearts above that belonged to, to God alone. So he says to them, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. Now he's going to talk about communion here. The cup of blessing which we ble- with which we bless, is it not the communion of the body of the blood, excuse me, the blood of Christ? And the bread we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For though we are many, for, for we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So what he's talking about here, because as we've learned before, in this church was rife with division, factions, strife, arguing over one another. If we went on further, and we've talked about this before, in chapter 11, he corrects the attitude with which they receive communion. But here he's using it as an example. He said, wait a minute, you're one. And you're fighting over this. He said, don't you understand that the bread we share together is a sharing together of the body of Christ? Now, let me answer this. He's not saying it becomes the body of Christ. He's not saying that little wafer or that little piece of bread you get has turned into the body of Christ. What he's talking about is it represents the body of Christ. See, that the physical bread and the physical juice or whatever it is you, we drink, we drink juice here, whatever it is, the significance is when you eat that bread, what happens to it? Do you eat too much of it? It shows up. It becomes part of you. When you drink something, what happens to it? It becomes part of you. You take it into your body and it becomes part of your body. Sometimes too much a part of our body, but that's what happens. In the same way, he said, this bread represents that you took Christ into you by the Spirit. He became one with you and you became one with Him. 
So the communion that he's talking about here is not the bread and the cup, it's what they signify, which is this is a representative, this is a reminder of the union that's taken place with you by the Spirit that's come in you, all right? Observe Israel, verse 18, after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? Is an idol anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? In other words, he's saying if you... Because what was happening here is some of them were still attending their temple services and were partaking of the pagan sacrifices. Because he's talking about idolatry here. They were going to church, but they were still, well, you know, I'm not quite ready to give up Diana and all the others, the temples, goddesses. So they were hedging their bets. <laughs> Some of you have done that too. And, and so they were also partaking of the... They were having communion with the Lord, and then they were going to go and they were going to sacrifice to idols, and then afterwards they'd eat the meat. And he said, don't you understand? Go back to Israel. He says, when, when the priest would offer that animal as a sacrifice, afterwards he would eat it, and he became a partaker of the one he was worshiping in that sacrifice. It's not just the physical act of eating it. We're going to see that in a minute. It's in the act of worship with that. You become a partaker, a joining together of the one you're worshiping. You are, you, you, are, you are opening yourself up to be joined to that. That's why you've got to be careful about things like astrology and Ouija boards and things like that. It's not the board. It's not the stars. It's opening yourself up to asking in the spirit realm for some other spirit to begin to show you things because they're out there. So what this is about is they were opening their hearts to other spirits as an act of worshiping them simply by practicing their old practices in the temple. So the principle here is this, is who you open yourself up to worship, you're giving yourself to. It's a heart issue. It's a giving of your heart out of that union or forming another union. It's not just physically what we do. Verse 20. The things that the Gentiles sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. So he's saying when you worship something, you're joining yourself to that. There's a spiritual connection taking place. He said, I don't want you to join the demons. Now, I'm not teaching this so much about what not to do. Is showing that he's saying as you worship God, you, there's a connection. There's a spiritual connection. So he says, don't do that with things that are ungodly. We're to do that with God because when you do that, you're, en you're enjoying, you're enhancing, you're experiencing this union that's taken place. Because that's really what worship is. Worship is, a, is, an, is an enjoyment of, an expression of, a, a, an experience of that spirit union. Most of us feel God's closeness with our emotions and our flesh. But there's a spiritual presence. There's a spiritual communion with Him that's far more deeper, far more satisfying, and that's what He longs for. That's what He desires. That's where He gets something out of it. 
See, when we're blessed and our flesh is blessed and we feel good, he doesn't get anything out of that. I never taught that before. But when it's a spiritual communion, a spiritual worship, he gets something out of that because he's a spirit and he's on the other end of that. Right, we're running out of time, so we gotta, I'm not going to end up finishing this today. I want to show you, though, but he's not talking about just what you eat. Notice what he says, verse 22. Or do you provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everybody longs for the spiritual fellowship, the spiritual communion, the spiritual joint together. But now he's going to address this other side. He said, all things are lawful for me to eat. Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one seek the other's well-being. Eat what is sold in meat markets and ask no questions for conscience sake. No, it doesn't matter when you eat the meat whether it was sacrificed to idols or not. Later on, he says, he says because if you give thanks for it, that's what grace is about, that sanctifies it. I used to struggle over this until, was it yesterday or the day before? I was going through this. Again, I asked the Lord, show me, give me discernment. And he did. He said, those first parts are talking about a worship service, a pagan worship service. Now what he's doing is he's putting balance to this. And said, but, but on the same token, don't worry about whether that meat that you got in the market was a cow that was sacrificed to Diana or whether it was just out on some, some farm. Don't get legalistic about this because the, the meat's not the thing. The thing is the spirit of what was done with it. What you're fellowshipping with in that exercise. So what he's going on to say is it doesn't matter where it came from. Again, because when you offer thanks to God for it, you're acknowledging, oh, well, you're the source of it. That sanctifies the meat, not the calories, the meat. Calories only coming out by prayer and fasting. (laughs) But you can sanctify the meat in God's eyes, so it doesn't matter where it came from. So that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about when you, when, you, when you open up to worship something, you enter into a communion with Him, a fellowship with Him, and if it's with something other than God, He's jealous because He's in you so that you can do that with Him. 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 12. We're not going to get finished this, but let's start it. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Same thing again. All things are lawful for me, but I'll be not be brought under the power of any. Food is for the stomach, the stomach's for food. But God's ultimately going to destroy both of them. The, body's not for, the body is not for sexual immorality, but the body was given to you for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do, not you, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the Bible says two shall become one, flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Therefore flee sexual immorality, for every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were brought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now what's he talking about there? In the same way he's saying, don't you understand that the sin of adultery 
is, is when you commit an act of the act that constitutes adultery, your bodies become one flesh. This is why that's not permitted outside of the covenant of marriage because it is only the union between a man and a woman under the covenant of, of marriage that God ordains. So when we do that outside, we're joining our body to someone we're not in covenant with and we become one flesh with them and if in some cases it produces another flesh. He says that's a breaking of a covenant. And what he's going to say is in the same way that when we do that with our flesh, if we do that with our spirit, we're doing the same thing. We become joined to another that we're not in covenant with. You follow that? So just as the body, adultery is of the body is a breaking of that covenant by entering into a physical union with someone you're not in covenant with and creates jealousy. In the same way when my heart worships things and I join my spirit to things other than the God who's come to live in me, I'm committing a spiritual adultery because I'm giving my spirit to some other spirit other than the one who loved me, paid the price for me, and has come to live inside of me. So the, what we're looking at here is this principle of spiritual union. And we'll end with this. Go over to chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which I've wrote you... Oh, no, wrong one place. Never mind. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In the same way that adultery is joining my body to someone other than the one I'm in covenant with, so we are one spirit with Christ, therefore we are not to give our spirit to anyone else. We're going to pick up here next week or next time because the verses we're going to get into talked about being unequally yoked. And a lot of people don't understand that because they think that's just some legal argument. I can't marry this person. I can't marry this person. I can't be that. We're going to learn the principle behind it is what we're talking about. Because yoked is a term referring to being joined to. So when you enter into a covenant relationship where you're joined to somebody, and that's not just marriage. It can be business. Where you're joined to somebody in some capacity, but certainly marriage is in every capacity, when you're joined to someone, you need to be careful who that is because you're now joined, you may enter into a union with somebody that's either going to enhance your union with God or detract that union with God. But why is it God's business who I marry? Because God's joined Himself to you. It's your wife's business who you hang out with. It's your business who she hangs out with, isn't it? I mean, what if, you know, you're married and, you know, your husband comes and says, you know, I love you, I'm, I'm devoted to you, but I just want to take a week and go off with somebody else for a while. I just, you know, it's just a couple of days. I'm with you the rest of the time. I'll take care of you financially. No way, Jose. You're mine and I'm yours. And yet we do that with God all the time. What business? You know, why does God care who I marry? Why does God care who I'm in business with? Why does God care who I join myself to? Because He's already joined Himself to you. This is all about learning what it means to be one 
spirit to spirit. That we have a sense of what this means because it's with that sense of what this means that we can begin to appreciate this union and then begin to worship him in that realm. Let's pray. Father, today we've heard some things perhaps some of us have never heard before. Perhaps some of us have heard it before and you're calling us to an understanding of it at another level. We recognize, sir, that that can only happen as your spirit begins to open the eyes of our understanding. And so as we prayed at the beginning, we trust you now that he is doing that in our lives. I ask you, Father, to bring some of these verses and some of the things that we've heard back to our remembrance in this week and the weeks that come and that your spirit begin to shine his light on certain things, that we would begin to have an understanding of what you have done in us and why you have done this. For we believe your word that you long for that type of worship. And Lord, we may not even understand that, and if we begin to understand it, it may seem overwhelming to us. But you never call us into something that you don't enable us to do. And so, Father, we thank you today that what you're calling us to we will be well able to do it. Continue to whet our appetites. Continue to draw us. Continue to draw us by your Spirit and to create in us a longing as you have a longing from your side. And for that, we thank you in advance in Jesus' name.